Welcome to On the Brink, a fresh lens to take you and your business to new heights. Hi, I'm Andy Simon. I'm your host and your guide. As you know, I'm the founder and CEO of Simon Associates Management Consultants. We specialize in applying anthropological tools to help people change. And you know, as I've told you so many times, people hate to change. So we help you see things through a fresh lens and get off the brink and soar. Today, I'm absolutely honored to have with us Britt Titus. Now, this is a very interesting woman who you are going to love to meet, to learn more about, and understand how behavioral sciences can be applied in humanitarian ways that you may be unfamiliar with. Let me read you her background, and then I'll introduce her. She lies at, Her background lies at the intersection of behavioral insights, humanitarian actions. She previously worked at Nudge Lebanon, where she managed projects that applied behavioral insights to issues related to conflict and violence, ranging from gender-based violence to social cohesion and refugee integration. She's going to tell you more about that. Beforehand, she spent most of her career working for the United Nations World Food Program in humanitarian response and preparedness across Africa, Asia, and the Middle East including emergency deployments to Liberia for the Ebola outbreak and the Middle East for regional Syria response. Britt has a Master of Public Policy from the University of Oxford, where she focused on applied behavioral science and completed research at the Behavioral Insights Team, BIT, in London. Britt, it's really an honor and a privilege to have you here. I'm so glad you could join me. Tell our listeners... Yeah, it's so much fun. Let's as one behavioral scientist to another who are working in different areas, but in similar ways, sort of. Tell us about Brit. What's your journey like? Let's make you come alive so people can appreciate how you've applied behavioral sciences to all kinds of different problems. Please, who's Brit? Thanks, Andy. Happy to share. So I started my my journey really um, working for the United Nations um, when I was in my in my early twenties, which seems like a long time ago now, um, and you know the the team that I was working with within the United Nations was really like a like a like a fire uh, response department. Um, so we were responsible for uh, responding to emergencies all over the world um, across many different continents. Um, which included a lot of kind of rapid deployments um, for sudden onset emergencies. Um, and so I really started my career by being thrown in the deep end. Um, my first year with the UN, I was um, deployed to work on the Syria emergency uh, across Jordan and Lebanon, uh, trying to support uh, the humanitarian community to get aid um, and relief supplies into the country across borders. Um, and shortly after that, I was also deployed to the Ebola outbreak in 2014, if you can remember that um, at that oh. time. Um, so being deployed to uh, Monrovia, the capital, um, and working within the UN system um, to try to um, better respond to the growing number of Ebola cases at that time. Um, and so this was a really formative period in my life. Um, it was extremely rewarding. Um, but something that was always uh, the most interesting to me was the human element, um, was why are people responding the way they do? Why, you know, when we are, uh, the humanitarian community are bringing relief supplies in uh, to communities in Liberia and West Africa, why is there so much fear? And, you know, the, the incredible, impossible task of trying to encourage 
um, people who are experiencing the Ebola outbreak to kind of turn over their sick family members to these faceless, uh, masked, PPE-donned uh, health workers um, in the midst of this crisis were all actions that needed to happen, um, and, and we were struggling. Um, we were building these large... Um, Ebola treatment units across the country, these large hospitals, um, and the beds were empty. And so we had to try and understand very rapidly why are people not bringing their loved ones, their family members to these hospitals? Um, what we understood was it was the human element. It was the fear. It was the um, misinformation. It was the rumors um, and the very, very difficult uh, task of, 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 of taking someone who's very ill and handing them over to these to these places um, that were very unknown and unfamiliar and foreign. And so these were the questions that I always uh, grappled with and was so fascinated by. And so um, partway into my career within the UN, I really knew that I wanted to go back and, and spend some time studying a little bit more um, and understanding how we can shift the way we do humanitarian response. Um, a lot of organizations, um, you know, the way that we've been doing humanitarian response now is the way we've been doing it for 50 years. Um, and so there's a lot of growing interest in more innovative ways of responding um, so we can improve outcomes for people whose lives are affected by crisis and conflict. Um, and so one of those ways that I found maybe my first week uh, doing my master's uh, of public policy, someone mentioned behavioral science. And I said, what's that? Um, and as soon as they told me what it was, I said, that's it. That's what I've always been interested in. I just didn't know the name of it. I didn't know that it had a whole evidence base and theory behind it. Um, and so I, I, I signed up for every course that I could at the University of Oxford um, and really delved uh, deep into it. Um, the struggle was, of course, that I found that it was being applied in government and it was being applied in private sector companies around the world, um, but it was not being applied in a systematic way in the humanitarian sector to deal with the issues that I cared about, like uh, pandemics and um, health and um, prevention of violence um, and education for, for people affected by crisis. And so... I was I was searching high and low for people who would be interested in this in this behavioral science thing, um, and it was difficult at that time. That was uh, 20, 2016. Um, and I had a lot of really interesting conversations with people who thought it was a great idea, um, but uh, but it was it was definitely difficult to to get some traction. And so eventually, I found Nudge Lebanon, which is a small uh, NGO working out of Beirut in Lebanon, um, applying behavioral science to issues uh, like social cohesion between the host population and refugees, um, health, nutrition, all of these topics that that I care uh, so deeply about, um, and really was able to to start start you know, running experiments, understanding human behavior, um, and all for the purpose of trying to improve humanitarian outcomes for people, Syrian refugees and Lebanese um, in Lebanon. And so that was really the beginning of my, of my career in this intersection of these two areas that I care about so deeply, um, and uh, eventually found, found that IRC, um, the International Rescue Committee, the organization I currently work for, has an innovation team called the Airbell Impact Lab, um, and within that, one of their uh, core areas um, or, or kind of tools in their toolkit is behavioral science. And, uh, and so I joined that team and, and now I lead the behavioral science team there. So that's my, that's my journey. That's your story. But, the, you know, the, the most exciting part is that you have gone through your own um, uh, self-discovery. Uh, at the same time, you're now trying to bring a new perspective and way of seeing things to people who think they're doing it just fine, thank you very much. The most interesting part 
you know, there are many things that are interesting what you're doing, but the hardest part is that it isn't working, but that's the way we do it. And if that's the way we've always done it, there must be the right way to do it, but it's mm-hmm. not working. Well, maybe it could work better, but that's the way we've always done it. And I cannot tell you, it's not that different going into an organization, a business that is uh, fractured, toxic culture. And they say, well, this isn't good, but it's it's the way we've always done it. Humans are wonderfully resistant to leaving that shiny object and going to a new one, a new way of seeing things that might do better. And the big question is, how will we know? You know, the unknown becomes a a crux for not doing it. And so I'm anxious to hear about some of your extraordinary experiences, helping them honestly do just what we said today, see, feel, and think in new ways so they can really overcome the resistance and do better. So, you know, help me listen to you. I'll be quiet. Help help us understand some, some of the ways that this has been working for you. How have you been able to start the transformation of people's minds and then, you know, breaking down the resistance to change. And you're smiling at me, so I'm not hitting you too hard. <laughs> Shoot. Yes. So, um, yeah, normally with, with our work um, applying behavioral science in humanitarian settings, we are aiming to shift behavior in the population that we're serving. So, for example, we're aiming to shift uh, behavior of teachers in a refugee camp or um, of, of parents uh, in a conflict setting. Uh, but you're absolutely right, Andy, that, you know, the, the, the change needs to start at home. Um, and it is really difficult. And a lot of the, 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 the behavioral biases and the resistance to change that we see um, in, in all of us also happens in our own organizations, in our own teams. Um, and so, yes, we are a, a small team, a small team, um, you know, doing behavioral science work a team of around four people at the moment, sitting within a, a wide organization of 15,000 people almost um, in 40 different countries around the world. So it is uh, it is no small uh, feat uh, to embed this new approach um, into the work we're doing. Um, so yeah, I think you know a lot of what we what we try and do with our with the population, we also try and do at home. Um, I think. One of the good things, one of the opportunities is that, you know, a lot of what teams have been have been doing for a long time, you know, their aim is ultimately what we're trying to do is try and shift behavior or help people kind of align their actions with their intentions. So supporting populations to achieve the outcomes that they want for themselves, whether that's improved education for their family, improved health, um, whatever it is. And so often that's really an entry point for us because ultimately we want the same thing. We want to, uh, you know, shift behavior in some way or help people kind of leverage um, these drivers of behavior which can help achieve outcomes. So that's our first entry point. And so I think what is what is important is to first kind of um, help these uh, other teams see that we're trying to achieve the same thing, um, which is always important for, for behavioral science work. It's kind of identifying where the kind of similar values are, or where your shared values, your shared objective is. Um, and then coming in and offering behavioral science, not as something that's going to uh, replace the ways of doing things from before. And it's definitely not a silver bullet. Um, but what we try to do is help uh, teams see that, you know, we can all use a, an added boost. Um, all of these projects, especially for these um, humanitarian contexts we're working in, where the challenges are extremely complex um, and extremely, you know, um, uh, just have a lot of complexity in them, um, using these tools that can help us understand human behavior, um, not just, you know, at the individual or household level, but also at the system level, you know, within a country, 
um, you know, can be extremely helpful. Um, and what's also beneficial is that, you know, behavioral science interventions tend to be uh, quite cost effective, as you know, um, you know, whether it's um, shifting the way that people um, see an intervention or, um, you know, using different types of messaging or helping people plan for the future. Um, these are not tools that are incredibly expensive. And so they actually work very well in uh, in these contexts, um, especially where we're resource constrained, uh, which we often are in humanitarian contexts. So there's a lot that we can do there to kind of um, help people see that this is uh, something that can be added on to their existing way of, of doing things and be embedded within program uh, development and design and doesn't have to replace it. Um, and I think what's also really important is bringing teams along in the entire journey. Um, so we know that, you know, if people are involved in things early on, they tend to have a sense of ownership, um, which is really good for, for kind of building momentum and having buy-in. But at the same time, we know that these programs and these projects are only really going to be effective um, if we have the input of the people who are closest to the problem. Um, and so it's, it's really twofold. It is important to build ownership, but it's even more important to have their input because, you know, behavioral science interventions are only as good as we understand the context, the people, uh, the problem, and uh, and typically it's our project teams and uh, and our teams on the ground who know know those things the best. So, um, so yeah, that's how, how, do, how, but, uh, how um, my head is going through at least a dozen questions. Let me take you through the, the, the first question. I'll be an anthropologist. How do you access real insight into what they think the problem is or how uh, to begin? I mean, because to your point, um, so people have a story in their mind. And that's the one they're trying to live, like we all do. Um, you're trying to show them a different or a different way that might be more effective, whether it's teaching or it's um, abuse in the home or it's you know whatever the issue is. Um, some, somehow we have to change their story. The Ebola one is a perfect one. You know, the big place wasn't the right place for my sick mom. Um, but you you didn't know how I felt or my story about it, so I'm not going to do what you say. Right. Even it may be the right solution, but it doesn't fit the way we do things. So story changing, your messaging point is extremely important. And it has to resonate with both the people you're collaborating with on your side and the people who you're trying to engage. Because if they don't engage in the solution, it'll, it'll just sit on the, on the surface and never get below it. Am I right? Absolutely. So yes. what do you do? It's a great question. Um, so I think, you know, traditionally, behavioral science has tended to be a little bit top down. So behavioral scientists get together in a team, they come up with an intervention, um, you know, they they try and uh, understand a bit about the context, they, they test that intervention, usually in an, a rigorous uh, way or with some type of evaluation. Um, but what we found, especially uh, definitely around the world, but definitely in these contexts, is we have to spend a lot more time doing this in a more bottom-up uh, approach. Yes. Um, one, because a lot of the behavioral science evidence, and including anthropology and, and psychology and social sciences, is really based in uh, you know, the global north in stable Western context. And so... <laughs> that was going to be my next question, but it is. Yes. <laughs> there is a strong perception and bias to it. Yes. And so we don't actually know... Um, as, a, as a field, as a community, a lot about the unique psychologies of people who are experiencing conflict, displacement, or people who are living um, in the global south. Um, and this 
what is uh, challenging about that is that means we have to we have to do a lot better. But there is really an opportunity there as well, because I think it really forces us to be more humble about what we don't know mm-hmm. and really go in and speak to our clients, we call them clients, um, the the communities that we're serving as the experts. They are the experts in what is going to work best for them. They are the experts in what has been tried before and has failed. And, you know, if we create something for them without them being included, then it's never going to be a sustainable uh, solution. Even if even if we uh, encourage people to take something up once, it doesn't mean they're going to change their behavior in the long run. Um, And so I have an example of a project where this was very evident um, in Northeast Nigeria. Um, So in Northeast Nigeria and and globally, um, the the community has been trying to roll out um, a a different way of teaching children, which is called social and emotional learning, uh, which really tries to improve the social and emotional capabilities and skills of children, especially vulnerable uh, children in places like the ones we work in, Northeast Nigeria and Yemen um, and Lebanon. Um, And so the reason we're doing this is because there's a lot of evidence in the global north uh, about how these types of uh, activities that can improve emotional regulation or conflict resolution in children have been extremely effective. Um, And so, you know, humanitarian organizations have tried to roll those out in in these contexts as well, except they found very little impact or even no impact when they roll them out. Um, And so you know, this obviously leads to a lot of confusion. Why are these uh, interventions, these very effective evidence-based interventions working in in the global north and not in places like northeast Nigeria? And so when we went into the the project to try and uh, look at this, we had two hypotheses. One was uh, maybe these activities have not been contextualized enough for the northeast Nigerian context. And the second one was teachers may not be using them enough for them to have the skill building effects on children. So we're not seeing any impact. Um, and so what we did is we started from the very from the very uh, kind of most local way we could start. So we started by speaking to teachers, to parents, to headmasters, to local government in the area and trying to understand uh, how do they see um, you know, social emotional learning happening in children. What does it mean to grow up to be a successful, uh, socially adapted, emotionally regulated uh, adult in Nigeria, not in the U.S.? What does it mean to do that in in Nigeria? And we learned a lot from that from that exercise. And what we learned is the skills that they thought were most important did not sound very much like the ones that we had been trying to promote um, from from the U.S. context. Um, The skills that teachers told us in Northeast Nigeria that were the most important for children to learn were things like self-discipline, obedience, and tolerance, uh, which is very different from terms like emotional regulation and conflict resolution. Um, And at first, this was quite, um, you know, alarming to some of our colleagues in the U.S. because words like obedience and discipline don't go down so well in the U.S. context. Um, And so, you know, we had some people who didn't want to use those terms. Um, (laughs) Forgive me for laughing. I'm holding back my laugh. Because, you know, it's it, it, those are, aren't the right terms. How, how would they know? Well, they are who it is. And yeah. why would they know? And how do we? It's so uh, please continue. I don't want to stop it. But I'm, I'm sitting here going, oh, yeah. <laughs> how yeah. we can deny. Right. So, yeah, we had this little bit of of, of moment of tension where the, the local terms and the local the locally valued skills sounded very different. Um, from what had been promoted and studied in the in the global north, 
Um, and so what we did is we actually did a mapping exercise where we tried to understand, well, what do these words mean to you when we ask the teachers? What does it mean for a child to be uh, obedient and, and have self-discipline? What does that look like? And they told us things like, you know, being able to focus on a task for a long period of time, being able to, uh, you know, work well with other students in the classroom, not getting in fights. And it was all the same thing that we were trying to promote in the Global North. They just had completely different ways of talking about it. Nice. Um, and that was a real breakthrough because we realized that teachers were going to be far more interested in using an activity that promotes self-discipline and obedience than one that promotes emotional regulation, a term that they meant nothing to them. And it meant the same thing. It was promoting the same outcome. And we found as we tested, as we used more of this local framing and more of this local content, the way we talked about the activities, what how we talked about the benefits to the children of engaging with these, we saw more uptake. Teachers were more and more interested in using <laughs> these activities. And it was almost like, finally, you've created something that's actually for our classrooms. Um, and so we, we did this kind of iterative approach of working with, I think it was about 12 core teachers over a year, continually improving, adding more local content to the program, infusing these local framing through everything to the point where every single word we use throughout this program from the training to the activity cards to the illustrations were completely localized um, and we saw really big improvements um, and we just did a pilot study that ran for about six months and found that uh, on average teacher teachers have been using these activities for about 18 minutes a day um, up from pretty much zero um, so we're really excited about this progress and um, yeah it, it seems to be the evidence so far showing that uh, teachers are really excited and motivated to use these activities for the first time, uh, uh, you know, since we've been testing these. So you just know. an example. And now a word from our sponsors, Simon Associates Management Consultants. That's us. And we're here to help you see, feel, and think in new ways. Whether you are an organization that's stuck or stalled or an individual in that organization who's looking to rethink their own life's journey. Simon Associates has designed programs and processes to help you do just that. Our first book, On the Brink, A Fresh Lens to Take Your Business to New Heights, told the stories of seven clients who were stuck or stalled, and a little anthropology helped them see things through a fresh lens, reignite their growth, and soar again. My new book that came out in January 2021 is called Rethink, Smashing the Myths of Women in Business. It's all about how 11 women, including myself, were able to see past the hurdles, the glass ceilings, and the brick walls and become the best that they could be. They heard things like women aren't lawyers and women can't lead and women aren't in geosciences. And they said, of course we are. And they really pushed through and did it with such ease that they want other women to see what's possible. At the end of the book, I provide a bit of a how-to process for you. If you're on the brink of rethinking your own life's journey, it's time to pause, step back, and ask yourself, where am I going? What's my passion and my purpose? And am I there or can I get there? Send us your emails to info at andysimon.com and we'll get right back to you to see how we can help. On andysimon.com are some free chapters for both books. And you can also join our newsletter and our Facebook group, Rethink with Andy Simon. We are bringing together women to help other women do what they can't do by themselves very often to see what's possible and become the best that they can be. Come join us. And now back to our podcast. But well, that's a big example. And, and for our listeners or our viewers, think about what Britt is talking about. First, they're co-creating it with the end user. And the second thing is that words create the worlds we live in. 
And their words may sound like your words, but they don't have the same meaning by any, any, any. So, and the, the third part is that if you don't understand the story and what they're looking for in the behavior, as opposed to the words, you won't know what it is you're trying to actually achieve. Mm-hmm. And it becomes an interesting, um, I'll call it my aha moment, when you realize that we're trying to both do the same thing really well, but if we don't think of it from your perspective, you know, not mine, and it isn't what I do, it's what you need, how do I help you? <laughs> it reframes the whole conversation. And now we become a support team and maybe that's not how you see it, but our job is to be an enabler, a facilitator, a support team, you know, and, and then watch what's actually happening and, and redirecting it along. And we become collaborators and partners in transformation. And that is a very exciting place to be, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yes. I think you summarized it perfectly. But, but your word humble is very important as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. It's a, it's a mindset, but I think putting it into practice looks exactly what you said. It is working extremely closely with the people that you're designing for. It's treating them as experts. It's co-creating with them at every step of the way. It's making sure that you are checking every assumption you have, um, everything down to the words and what they mean uh, and how they, you know, what they mean to people. And that might be different from the way you, you think about them. Um, you know, I, I think all of those things are are the practical applications of a of a of a humility mindset. And I think every project could benefit from from that type of uh, approach. Well, but you're really doing something very powerful, because if you have four thousand folks out there who all think that they are no and the folks are trying to help don't, you can't go very far. Um, I don't know if you know Judith Glazer's work on conversational intelligence and the power of we good neuroscience. She was an uh, organizational anthropologist. Yeah. But the, the brain, assuming they're all very much the same brains, when you say I, the amygdala immediately fears it, flees it, hijacks it, fights it, runs away from it. It just protects you. You're challenging me. But if we say we, all of a sudden, the procreation, the trust, the oxytocin flows through your brain, we bond. And if that's the way our minds work, regardless if you're in West Nigeria or Lebanon, and we say the right words, However, that said, and that doesn't necessarily mean we, but it it is a different response for reasons that are good. That mind isn't fighting you or fleeing you. It wants to know how, you know, how me. I mean, it's a very, and, and that creates a behavioral science's enormous power of transformation. Hmm? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess I'm a fan, huh? <laughs> me too me too um as you're thinking are there is there another illustrative case i i honestly just am picking your brains to hear the joy that you're having as you're watching things actually work and and then you go how oh, it can work can it yeah absolutely yeah so uh i think another really uh exciting project we have uh have been working on using a similar approach is in mali um, and one of the big uh, problems that we're trying to address in Mali and other countries is um, severe uh, acute childhood malnutrition. Um, and so one of the big problems with trying to address childhood malnutrition is being able to detect it and diagnose it. Um, and a lot of children don't get the treatment that they need because they never get diagnosed. And it's too late by the time that they are uh, uh, diagnosed, it's it's too late in their journey, um, and uh, and too difficult to um, to you know either bring them back or you know there's a lot of um, kind of uh, health morbidities that come with that. So 
in rural areas, like in Mali, where places we work, um, you know, typically the place to get uh, diagnosed is is quite far away. You know, uh, mothers and fathers uh, tend to have to, you know, travel very, very far distances, you know, hours a day uh, if they want to go visit a clinic. Um, and so one of the kind of solutions within the humanitarian space is to put that put the um, opportunity uh, and responsibility of screening children in the hands of parents themselves. Um, and so there's a tape, um, a tape that is given out um, to mothers, which goes around a child's arm, upper arm, and can measure whether or not they're mal malnourished or not with a red, uh, yellow, green kind of traffic light uh, type um, measurement. Um, the problem is, is that if you are going to screen your, your own child for malnutrition, you have to do that every single month, at least, sometimes every single week, um, in order to detect these small changes that can happen that you might not notice just by looking at your child if you see them every day. Um, and so this is a behavior that is uh, quite difficult. It's something that uh, you have to do every single month, which is a very difficult uh, timing to remember. I think if you and I were told to do something uh, every month for the next year, you know, at some point in the month without a, a phone reminder or an email calendar uh, mm -hmm. notification, there's pretty much no way I'd remember to do that. Um, and also, you know, these mothers are, are expected to do a lot. They are cooking for the family, they are cleaning, they are sometimes working. Um, and so, you know, in terms of um, mental scarcity, um, and in terms of all the things that they're expected to remember and to do every day, it's pretty much impossible uh, that they remember to do this. And so, you know, we've seen in areas where the majority of women were trained on this approach, you know, very little, maybe a fifth of those women ever used that tape to screen uh, their own children for malnutrition, which is a big problem. Um, and so we wanted to understand why is this happening? What's going on? Um, what what is the 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 reason why why we're seeing so much um, kind of drop off after the trainings, um, and how can we encourage uh, women to screen their children because ultimately they want that too. They want their children to be healthy and happy and and to know if their children are, are experiencing malnutrition so they can get help in time. Um, so when we did this um, uh, kind of exploratory phase, which we like to do, especially uh, based on what we said earlier, is we don't know a lot about the psychologies of 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 women in rural. Oh. Month. Um, and there are no, you know, papers out there that say how to encourage, um, you know, mothers in rural Mali to screen their own children for malnutrition. Uh, there's actually very little to go on. And um, if you were going to try and develop a reminder, which is a common behavioral science tool used across the world, if you were going to try and uh, set that up, for example, in the US or the UK, you might send text message reminders once a month. Um, the problem is these women do not have their own phones. Maybe they share a phone in the household. Uh, even if there is a phone, they might not have a signal um, very often. It might be in and out, and they might not have, you know, the ability to have phone data on a regular basis. Um, so that's really not an option for us. Um, and many of them are illiterate, uh, meaning that even if we sent a text message, it would be very difficult for them to read it. So we had to come up with a way of reminding women in rural areas without using any technology or any kind of, um, you know, device or, or data, which we often rely on. And, uh, you know, this is especially difficult in areas where these, you know, women have a different way of, of considering time and timekeeping than we would. Um, there's no calendars in their home. There's not necessarily uh, kind of the same way we would think about um, timing and marking days. Um, and so we really had to understand how do these women t uh, think about time? How do they remember to do the things that they already do? What are their existing things that they have to remember to do once a month or once a week? And how can we really leverage what they're already doing and the way they already consider time and piggyback onto that? 
Um, and so we did a lot of testing with these women um, over and over again, uh, going back and back and forth to this region of Mali um, and testing and prototyping and showing them examples, uh, which was really fun. And, and, uh, and they really enjoyed it, um, being able to rank different ideas and give us feedback and uh, they were very honest with us. You know, one of our ideas was, should we should we get a, a little device that goes off once a month, a little beeper? And they, you know, very, very confidently said, well, where are we going to get the batteries for that? That's a silly idea. Um, and uh, so they were very, very helpful in that co-creation um, uh, process. And I think, you know, we found in, across projects, that the more time you spend with, with, the, with the user group, the more you build trust and the more honest answers you start getting. It's not always the case at the beginning. So really investing in those relationships and seeing the same women over and over again was very, very helpful for the project um, to really, really get the, the nitty gritty out of the, out of the, out of the context and their lived experience. And so what we ended up finding out is that um, many of these women are in these uh, informal women's savings groups. So they they meet about once a month um, already uh, with other women and they pool their savings. Uh, and we were like, great, wow, you're already doing this thing once a month. And so we thought, well, what happens if we, what if we piggybacked on that and we encourage women to bring their children to these meetings once a month and they can all screen together, which would be socially reinforcing. You'd be seeing other women doing it. It would be a reminder Two, you have the ease of doing it there, you know, when everyone else is doing it um, and you have support of other women. If you're, if you're not quite sure if you're getting the right reading, you have someone else to come and help you, especially, you know, holding a wiggly child on your lap and trying to get their arm to help hold still is uh, is an impossible feat on its own. So we tested this out and and they really, really loved it. Um, so we got really positive feedback um, and we we're able to continue iterating on that idea and kind of create this social, social network reminder uh, that came out of months and months of spending time with the population, understanding their lived reality that we would have never known had we, you know, tried to come up with a solution and implemented, you know, in the first few weeks. Um, that took, it took, it took months of getting to know the population before we were able to find that kind of sweet spot between what they're already doing and what also meets the needs of the program. So um, we've also just run a, a pilot study on that and found really promising results uh, from, from that activity and, and women really excited about using those uh, groups uh, with other women to screen their children for malnutrition. It is. Um, we, we don't have to talk now about what do they do if they find out if they are malnourished. Mm -hmm. um, but that that's, you know, another piece of this. But I think that the power of the group is fascinating for um, Westerners who think about isolation and, and families having no grandparents here. There's a great bunch of articles that just came out on the power of the grandparent and um, and that, that the, the nature of society in smaller scale societies is very much about a uh, about each other, about about a collaboration. Even if you live in isolation, you need the others to help you save, take care of your kids and know how and, and doing it together is much more exciting and fun. You yeah. need it into something purposeful in yeah. their minds, as opposed to simply tactical and practical. Yes. It was tactical and practical. Take the measurement and you'll know. Really? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, uh, much better to have that kind of social accountability and, and to have that reminding point and to know that other women are going through the same thing, um, yes. which also can, you know, help a lot with stigma and norms as well. Um, so we believe it can also be a, a kind of um, an intervention that picks up momentum as people start to see that this is the new norm yes. um, and start to see others doing it more often. I, I think you probably have a bunch of detours along the journey. 
Uh, And I don't think there's a destination per se, but I think the other part you might find is that there'll be self-appointed leaders who begin to take ownership of this. Yes, right? And and who now feel a responsibility to them and you. And and that becomes, and not necessarily an anointed leader, but uh, casual, informal leaders who now talk to each other in a way that they can see the, and then it becomes contagious. Yes. No. You know, it's so interesting because it doesn't matter whether it's here in the States or anywhere else. Um, humans are fascinating. And if you don't pause for a moment and, and see that the, through their eyes and how to do it, you can't go anywhere. Even if we're, 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 we know where we need to go, it won't get there. Yes. Um, and then they're the problem, but they're not the problem. You're the problem. But actually, yeah. you're not the problem either. The problem is a problem. And the question is, how can we get past it to find some solutions that are clever and creative and innovative? Yeah. And that, that is, is um, uh, and there's a book called The Secret of Our Success by Joseph Heinrich. I have it sitting here on my, count, on my, my shelf here. It's a wonderful book about how human evolution has happened. You know, you and I are both anthropologists. We love to look back to go forward, but it's because of our collective brains. And what you're describing is a collective brain, not an isolate. You know, the isolates didn't do very well. They didn't survive very well. But together, we can do far better, you know, in the shareables. And you almost probably became part of the shareables. You were no longer the outsiders, but part of the insiders, weren't you? And yeah. 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 This is such fun. You and I could talk for a while. I know why Sarah said we'll just keep talking, but we can. We've probably taken our listeners and viewers' time up, but I so enjoy um, the, the opportunity to share your sharing with us, and I can't thank you enough for doing that. Um, the organization, would you like to share a little bit more about um, IRC, the work that you're doing, how people might find out more about it, and why it should be important for them? Please. Absolutely. Yes. So the IRC is also, uh, uh, speaking of looking back in time, uh, quite an old organization. So it was actually uh, set up in 1933 um, at the request of Albert Einstein to support the Germans who were suffering under uh, Hitler's regime um, and also eventually uh, refugees from uh, Mussolini's Italy and Franco's Spain. Um, And so this organization has been around for a long time and has also had many iterations. Um, And so So, yeah, now we're a large organization, um, as I mentioned, serving around 40 different countries around the world. Um, And uh, within that organization, we have uh, the Airbell Impact Lab, which is our research and innovation um, part of the organization. Um, And so within that uh, team, we're really, really focused on trying to create breakthrough solutions um, in the areas of uh, malnutrition, which I've mentioned, uh, education and emergencies, which I've also mentioned, uh, women's health, um, and climate resilience and adaptation for the the future climate shocks um, and current climate shocks that um, are disproportionately affecting uh, people in humanitarian contexts. Um, so those are the main areas that we are we are focusing on with our uh, innovation, behavioral science, human-centered design, and all of these different approaches. Um, and so, yeah, I uh, I welcome everyone to um, have a look at our website, um, which is um, the Airbell Impact Lab uh, website, which I think you can probably share with people. Uh, it's Airbell bell.rescue.org um, to read about some of the projects we've been working on and, and see how you can support if you're interested in being involved. Don't I love it? Don't you love it? You have found your calling. It is so beautiful. 
Thank you. I don't know where your journey is going to take you, but thank you for sharing it today. And for all of our listeners and viewers, thank you for sharing our podcast with your network, however you can. As I mentioned, um, we are now in the top 5% of global podcasts. It's truly an honor and a privilege to be able to find great people like Britt to share with you. And then you don't take it from there. If you've got folks you want us to interview, info at andysimon.com is uh, just how you can reach us. And simonassociates.net is our website. Our books are available at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and they continue to be bestsellers and award winners and having fun. My next book comes out next September 2023, and I'll tell you all about it when it happens. But for now, I want to wish you a safe and happy journey wherever it's taking you. And please enjoy yourself for every day is a gift. And we have to live it like that. And Brit is doing some marvelous work. Go take a look at her website and take a look at how you might be able to help her or at least learn from what she's doing. The messaging is very important. She is helping you see, feel, and think in new ways. And that's what we're here to help you do. So on that note, I'm going to sign off and say goodbye. Thanks, Brit. Thanks, Andy. Always, always wonderful to speak to an anthropologist. I'm sure we'll <laughs> have a longer conversation one day. I hope we meet soon. Bye now.